Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. Thank you again. And now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time. Hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is the Reverend Peter Laws. Peter is not only a church minister, but also an author, journalist, public speaker and podcaster. He has written articles for the Fortean Times and has a regular film review column there. In 2018, he wrote his acclaimed non-fiction book, The Frighteners, which sought to understand and defend why humans have a morbid streak and saw him investigate the human fascination with death, murder and the supernatural. Our conversation is a wide-ranging one, starting with Peter's love of horror movies and the juxtaposition of that with his religious vocation. We also discuss his own podcast projects, along with subjects such as the nature of good and evil, demonic possession... Padre Pio and the mystical elements of Christianity, vampires, and much more. It was a very entertaining conversation, but please be aware that it does contain some gruesome subject matter that you may wish to avoid if you are not a fan of that sort of thing. Enjoy! Peter, welcome to the podcast. Hello, great to be here. You have a book called Weird... And the tagline for that is uh, how you went from being an anti-church horror fan to pro-horror church minister. So (laughs) just talk a little bit about how did that happen for you? Well, I mean, it's kind of one of the most, well, you could say maybe even the most significant sort of journey of my life, if you wanted to describe it that way, which is moving from a person who was very antagonistic towards the church and Christianity in particular. And, um, yeah, finding myself kind of winding up on a path towards becoming a church minister. But the thing that kind of set me on that path was that which normally Christians say is evil and uh, demonic. And that was horror films, interest in the paranormal, you know, watching films about satanic worship and, you know, black magic rituals, all of that sort of stuff that I suppose some Christians would say, gosh, there's nothing good could come of watching those things. And um, I've always been a big believer in saying there's plenty of good in that, not least entertainment. But um, for me, yeah, I found that those films started to set me on a a path of asking weirdly Christian questions. So, um, so yeah, so that's that. That was kind of a, a a big change in my life because everyone else assumed that I was a devil worshiper or something, and they were shocked when I came back from university declaring that I was a that I was a Christian. Wow. Okay. And so how did that sort of happen for you? I mean, were you, through your love of horror movies and things like that, were you interested in the subject matter that those films were about? So the supernatural, things like that? Well, yeah. I mean, 
ironically, I think uh, I think horror is a genre that, or the only genre that that really takes the supernatural seriously, and and a lot of the things it says and the ideas it explores and the questions it asks are actually, to me, very reminiscent of the type of questions and ideas that you discover when you're in spiritual circles or, or Christian circles. So horror would talk about the existence of good and evil, for example, not just being a kind of sort of wispy idea, but as an objective reality. And that, ironically, is something that people were talking about in churches as well. And also the idea of the supernatural existing, the concept of the afterlife and possibly there being something beyond death. And a lot of the films that aren't horror tend to either look down on that or just see that as an irrelevance. Whereas horror puts that front and center and says, no, death is not the end, there's something else. And to me, um, they were always kind of the same types of questions that spiritual people were asking. Now, whether or not I was drawn to horror because I was originally ask, asking spiritual questions and I discovered horror was the only one to do, to do that. I think that's possibly half true or partly true, I should say, but really I was drawn to horror because I just love scary things and monsters and the action of, uh, of horror. But for people who dismiss the genre as being kind of demonic or anti-church or indeed useless or just a cheap thrill, I think don't get what is going on in, in horror films. And for me, they certainly, whereas everything else was shutting my world down and saying, no, you know, be rational. Horror was the only one that was saying, what happens if there's such a thing as the irrational? Mm, definitely. I think that's a really good point you make about horror films taking these kinds of subjects seriously. Definitely right now, it feels like they're, they're a great medium for for discussing these subjects. I I really enjoyed the most recent Haunting of Hill House series. I thought that was a really yes. interesting look at what a haunting might be. And in that series, you don't really get a, de a definite answer. There's a, there's a few answers and each that seem pretty valid. And I don't think, I can't imagine you would get, right now you would get a major TV channel over here making a show about the nature of hauntings. I just, I can't see that happening. So it's great that, that we have films and TV series that do explore it. Yeah, and, and they consistently explore it, even to the extent where you could even argue that um, horror is a very old-fashioned genre because really some, some horror films play like Christian propaganda, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> you know, films like The Conjuring in particular are, are very old-fashioned in, in, in the sense of they're presenting like they're evil demons in the world and they'll take, a, take over you. The only way to um, to protect yourself is to is to connect with the good side and the good side is, is God and the good side is kind of um, Jesus and Christianity. And it has that sort of, um, you know, like yin and yang vibe going on, um, but that there's this ultimate good. I think this is one of the reasons why films like The Conjuring are so popular because um, for many people in our, in our culture today, we kind of, we, you know, we're, we're in a kind of post-Christendom culture. So we've, Sort of feel like that stuff's not relevant anymore, and I can understand why many people would would think that. There's good reason to think that, particularly with the behaviour of the church. However, um, there's always a latent worry, I think, in culture that once we get when we get rid of one worldview, sometimes stories come back and say, "Ah, but what happens if that was a bad idea to reject it?" You see that with kind of 
uh, gothic horror or with um, science fiction movies uh, where, you know, with the, 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 the enemy is science. You know, it's like really we all embrace science and science is, 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 is a brilliant thing for society. We need it. But horror films would sometimes say, ah, but yeah, what happens if uh, science could make a giant mutant ant and destroy the world? Do we know what we're messing around with? You know, so it's that like cautionary note. So I think films like The Conjuring and others, and particularly the, the, the boom in demonic possession movies, come in and kind of try to scratch that itch and say, hey, what happens if the thing we've abandoned um, may have been our biggest shield against these these forces. You don't have to believe that, of course, but it just plays into a sort of cultural dread, um, which is why I like horror films, because they sort of speak to what's scary in a culture. Mm, definitely. I, I Another uh, subgenre of horror is folk horror, and I think that really yeah. leans, in, that leans into the, the flawed notion that, that civilization will protect you it's it solved all the problems it's not mm-hmm. I, I love any sort of film where something incidental can happen like someone could break down or you just get lost somewhere and you're you're suddenly in this other world which is very different and has a different set of rules and find i mean the wicker man is the best example of that i suppose which yeah, and yes. i love that film oh yeah me too um i i watched the uh the Nicolas Cage remake for the first time recently and I had an absolute riot watching that but not for the reasons <laughs> perhaps that um they intended it was just so hilariously messed up and bad in places I thought it was great but the actual original Wicker Man is 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 superb but yeah the thing you mentioned about you know folk horror playing into this sense of um you know if if civilized the civilized world that we have we think we've got it all together but actually you know, maybe there's powers in the earth or in nature that are are bigger than we think. Um, I'm not surprised to see like folk horror becoming resident in society today or in culture at the same time as kind of we've just moved through, say, zombies were the big thing. And zombies, in a way, were saying similar things, which were, you know, do you realize how reliant you are on society and its structures and globalization and how everything is connected and you don't appreciate that if the world was to fall into a kind of apocalyptic scenario tomorrow um the world would be in chaos and you're totally unprepared because you don't even know how to make a candle you know never Mm. mind you know obtain um a rifle to protect your family and all these sorts of things and i think again it that that's why these horror films just they press on the things that we're vulnerable about and so to look at what's trending in horror is to find out what what are we what are we feeling vulnerable about at the moment and um yeah i think folk horror and zombies and you know demon possession movies are speaking to those latent fears we've got i i guess as well with folk horror i mean more recent examples it it feels like it sort of plays on the notion of people visiting the countryside in the wilderness on holiday and maybe not respecting it i i wonder if there's a sort of a lack of respect for nature theme that runs in some in some folk horror yes. especially especially at the moment with a climate crisis and concerns about the future of the planet it it feels like you can you can almost pitch nature and the and the environment as as the sort of angry antagonist in a in a folk horror film yeah yeah and there's there's certainly plenty of films that will kind of present 
nature as as kind of the enemy in a sense, but not an enemy in a malevolent, it wants to hurt us way, but just it's bigger than us. Like there's a film called Gaia, which I reviewed recently for a column that I write. And in that, you know, people were succumbing to the earth and lying there and mushrooms were sort of growing up through their bodies and out of their skin and kind of destroying them and turning them into these monsters. But it wasn't because the earth was trying to, you know, didn't like humans and wanted to kill them. It was, mm. it was indifferent to us. It was just growing and we happened to be in the way at the time, which is kind of the way we treat the earth, you know, like, you know, there's a tree there, but we might as well get rid of it and plow, 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 um, plow a road through it. And um, it's, it's kind of similar to what you see in Lovecraft and Cthulhu, you know, Cthulhu, this great God who, you know, may come up from the depths and destroy us. But again, it's not because we're his arch enemy. He couldn't even care less about us. We're like ants on his arm and we're just, he's just going to brush us away. And there's that, that feeling of being an insignificant part of the universe is probably, I think, partly to do with, you know, us moving on from a sort of religious worldview, which, and you could criticize this, puts human beings as the absolute center of the universe, you know, that God created us and we're the apple of his eye and we are above all creation. Um, and uh, the horror films in those sorts of worlds are if you mess with God's God's order, evil will triumph or you'll be destroyed. Whereas now in a kind of post-Christendom world, it's more like, you know, maybe there isn't, you know, anything other than the relentless power of nature, which will just brush us aside because we're no more important than mushrooms in a field you know so all that sort of stuff is pretty cool a great a great place to to write horror yeah absolutely i really want um poison ivy to be in the next batman movie because i think i <laughs> yes. think she would be a great villain and a sort of an anti-hero kind of but who knows <laughs> mr freeze as well because he could call the oh yeah call the planet so yeah I just keep thinking of arnold schwarzenegger with that yeah i guess i'm saying i want batman and robin again but but yeah. just a bit different, like a like a remake of that. It can still have jokes in it, but just uh, just just more with the sort of the eco warrior angle. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, talking there a little while ago about the concepts of good and evil, I'm just I'm curious, what's your sort of worldview on on those as a minister and and as and as somebody who, you know, you, you have these sort of nuanced concepts about the nature of things. How, how do you balance those two out? How do you mesh them together in terms of your interests in your career? Uh, I mean, it's it's interesting because I, I think some people, when they hear that you're a Christian, they think you're going to be maybe more black and white than anyone else and that you're going to kind of proudly announce who you believe is evil and who isn't. Um, but I, but it's gone. It, it's a different experience for me, Christianity. Um what Christianity has done for me is it's not really, I'm not really kind of a religious type. It's, it's more centered on the whole Jesus side of things rather than kind of religious sets of rules. Cause I was, I was always drawn to the fact that I was railing against Christians and religion when I was growing up. And then when I started actually looking at the Bible, I thought, Oh, hang on a minute. Jesus is also railing against uh, religious people. He has a problem with religious people. And that's the, those are the people he's always, complaining about or arguing with because they think they are the good ones and everyone else is evil. So for me, um, my, my Christianity has got me to a place where 
I'm sort of I'm very reluctant to label people as evil. Um, that doesn't mean to say I don't think evil exists. You know, like I mean, there's certainly kind of evil acts and and things that are just plain wrong uh, in a kind of objective sense. However, um, when it gets to people, um, I always think the thing about God is, in my mind, you know, if God is omniscient and knows everything about a person, then he knows everything about that person, whereas we don't. So imagine if, I don't know, for example, you've got a serial killer, and I'm not for a second defending serial killers, but sometimes when a serial killer is on the on the loose and, and, and striking, you know, fear into the hearts of people, the the media start to use surprisingly supernatural language to describe them because uh, it's quite a complex kind of sociological thing they're doing because we can't handle the idea that they could be like us, like a, just a general person next door. So they start describing them as evil or as a monster or they'll give them monikers like, you know, the vampire of Sacramento or whatever. And um, what happens there, I think, is we're very quick to label those people as evil. Whereas that's because we just know them as a one-dimensional character. However, I think looking at it from a godly point of view, it's to understand that they are they have lots of dimensions like everyone else. So perhaps, for example, they have they literally have something screwed up with their brain that they cannot show sympathy, um, or that they have no empathy, or they have been abused through their lives, or there's all these sorts of extra reasons that once you discover them, you start to have not sympathy for the acts they did. What the acts they did is disgraceful and should be punished. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm just saying it's a more nuanced view of other people. And so my my faith takes me more towards a open-mindedness about the other person, whereas I do think other people who call themselves Christians, not everyone, but I've met some, who it locks the world down to a very binary, well, these are in and these are out. They're the evil ones. We're the good ones. And I'm not I'm not as keen on that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. So what about something like demonic possession? Um, that's a subject I find fascinating, but also one that I feel like you have to be really careful talking about because the, the, the vast majority of the time, anything that somebody does, anybody who's thought to be possessed, it will be mental illness and that needs to be treated appropriately. But then there are cases where it does seem to go beyond that and i'm just wondering what you think about that and how, how do we talk about demonic possession in a healthy way that doesn't trivialize the mental health aspect of, of these of these happenings uh, yeah I, I mean i think a healthy way of, of discussing anything is to just not decide what your view is first and then try to squeeze everything into those pre-existing ideas so, for example, to say, well, obviously there's no such thing as demons, so um, let's explain everything that that couldn't possibly fit into that, and um, and we'll come to our conclusion. Whereas I think a, a better view is to say, well, look, hang on, let's think think about this uh, as different options, and um, have a bit of a more three dimensional view of it. Similarly, um, other people I've met who are more Christian who would say, Oh no, it's definitely demons. You know, it's, and they'll think there's a devil behind every bush really. And um, for them, their default is, uh, is that. So I, th I think I, I tend to um, swerve towards your way of thinking just at the beginning there, when you said 
that the vast majority of cases, and I've done a, a fair bit of reading and research into this because um, my fourth novel was about possession and about the misdiagnosing of people who merely suffer from, you know, everyday mental illness from epilepsy to there's things like alien hand syndrome or, or other things like that, you know, um, and the the risks of misdiagnosing someone like that as having a demon is just is huge. And, and there's people um, in my own podcast I, last year, I, I would kind of have a, a bi-weekly update of the different people who had been killed or murdered throughout the world because they were in a possession that had gone wrong. So you you absolutely must err on the side of, I think, it could be mental illness. It probably is mental illness, I should say. And you must have professionals involved at every level, doctors, you know, GPs and psychologists. However, um, that's not to shut it all down and say that therefore there's not, there's no chance of it ever being supernatural. Just because there are occasions where you read about cases where things happen that are a bit more inexplicable. Um, things where perhaps... Like, for example, you see some people who will claim, oh, well, clearly the person was possessed because they would swear and rail against the cross whenever we brought it out. And that's like, that's that means nothing. Like mm -hmm. anybody can pretend to do that. So that's irrelevant. So that, 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 that's easy to dismiss in the sense of that that's not a, a proof that it's uh, satanic or, or, or demonic or whatever. Um, but then it's it's when... You hear about stories where, let's say, the exorcist is with witnesses and they are kind of trying to cast the demon out. And then the demon or the voice of the demon or the voice of the person, depending on your view, suddenly starts saying to someone in the room, I know why your sister killed herself. <laughs> and it's like, what? And then the look, like, did your sister kill yourself? Kill herself? And you'd be like, holy crap, yes. Like, she did and and they'll start like having kind of forbidden knowledge you know things that now again you could say oh well maybe the maybe this is the person's psychic then or um or maybe it's a it's a con or maybe these things don't actually happen but they're just myths and stories but it's there are examples like that where you know people levitating <laughs> um that's pretty hard to fake um so th there are things that seem to have happened and it's just up to you to decide, well, are you ready to dismiss all of that? Um, I think a lot of it is probably just kind of myth and fable and uh, people who watch horror films and start telling the stories. But I'm not prepared to shut the door to say that never happens because there's some consistent stories that where it does. So it's a woolly answer, I know. But the bottom line is, I think I would always err towards the mental health thing, get professional help but I would leave the door open to a spiritual answer. And ironically, you know, because um, I mean, the demonic possession, de uh, sorry, demand for exorcism, I should say, is just really exploded in the last few years. Like it's it's more popular than ever, really. People coming to ask for uh, a possession uh, to be getting rid of. And um, with those people, there's even some arguments to say, even if it's a placebo, you know, that's the thing that will help that person. Because if they, if they think the answer, that the problem is spiritual, maybe the answer is a spiritual ritual, even if it's not true. But having said all of that, 
I still go back to the risks and the fact that people die during exorcisms. And that's why you have to be uber, uber cautious. In other words, it's a big mess. And um, people are in the midst of it even now. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So that was a long answer, sorry. No, no, it was excellent. Um, and another feature that can sometimes occur in cases of what is described as demonic possession is speaking in a language that the person doesn't know. And when I yes. when I hear about things like that, I wonder if it's, we still don't really know the true sort of landscape of the human mind, how it sort of works, quote unquote, quote unquote works. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if, if somehow in the if in our subconscious in our in, or in the collective unconscious you can sort of tap into this limitless sea of knowledge and if you're if you're traumatized enough if something happens to you your 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 mind just taps into this and maybe it can't deal with the amount of information it's got so it's sort of yeah it shuts, shuts it, down, it down and goes like into a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's interesting i mean certainly the whole idea of you know we only use a certain amount of the capacity of our brains and the idea that we might have lots of kind of you know we you know we might pick up everything that you know we remember every single thing but it's maybe the people with photographic memory have the ability to to bring some of that back and maybe we all can bring some of that back and so as somebody who suddenly starts speaking in latin in an exorcism who knows maybe they just they 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 remembered that from watching a horror film where somebody was speaking in Latin and then the trauma of the situation and being similar, the subconscious goes, Oh, I guess this is what you want then <laughs> and brings <laughs> up this memory that you don't even know you've got. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty interesting idea. Um, but, but again, what, what can happen is like I said earlier, if you decide, well, the demonic spiritual bit can't possibly be true, then you, you start sort of twisting in all sorts of ways to try and answer it. Um, and and sometimes you end up with things that are even more preposterous than the idea of maybe there's a spiritual world. And so that's why I'm quite happy to be gray about it in the sense of, I don't, th- I think what's interesting is even with, with belief in ghosts and, and, and God or all these sorts of things, I don't think you have to, as you, particularly as you grow older, you don't have to decide um, which side of the fence you're on. And I think that's unfair because a lot of people think that's what maturity is, that, you know, you go through your life, you gather as much data as you can, and um, and then you'll say, right, well, okay, I'm 50 or 60 or 70, and I've, I've, I've looked at all this stuff, and now I've come to my conclusion. And, um, and if I haven't come to my conclusion yet, then what am I doing? Whereas, actually, I don't think that's how the world works. I think what happens is you gather more and more data through life and experience, and the world, the world gets grayer. Um, you're not fully sure what's what. And I'm quite happy to exist in the gray. So example, when it comes to God, for example, I'm very happy to say, maybe God doesn't exist. <laughs> it, could be, it could be completely a myth. Um, it could be uh, some, uh, just a, a, a fairy tale or a desire because um, I'm scared of death or something. And I, I don't think it's kind of disingenuous or weird for me to hold that as a possibility i just think it's more about like which direction are you looking or which direction is your life leading toward and even if it's just a one percent um you know for me i find for example 
sometimes on the days when I might think, oh, maybe there is no God, I find myself praying to God about the fact that he might not exist. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> but yeah, God, I'm, I don't even think you're around anymore. I think this is just a myth or an illusion. And it's that that tells me something like, I, I think I, the, you've got to be able to live with your worldview. And I'm not sure if I um, cut out to live with a, a worldview that is devoid of any potential spirituality or supernatural or um, purely rational. But again, the people, the friends who I do, who I have, who do think that way, I have utmost respect for them. And I think, you know, maybe they're right, <laughs> I, I, but we just point towards one or the other, I think. Yeah, I, I agree there. I think what, what you're describing uh, is the sort of the classic 14 viewpoint. Uh, mm. you, you write for, you write for 14 times yeah. and, and I, I, I do try to, to have that approach but sometimes there's always this thing sort of tugging you towards wanting to know what something is or, or feeling that you have to put your hat in one camp or the other but i've said this before on on other interviews with people if there was ever an explanation for example for bigfoot like if it turned out bigfoot was a really hominid or something i mean as much as that would be incredible mm-hmm. part of me would be heartbroken because i love the not knowing the mystery of that phenomena Yes, I, I I totally agree with that, and um, I I think it's something you can you can gauge that in your own life when you kind of look at films or stories and you decide which is your favorite part of the film. And for me, the favorite part of films, let's say a horror film or whatever, is that the first half. It's the like the first half of Jaws when you know there's there's a there's a creature out there we're not fully sure what's going on and people are getting picked off and people are trying to figure it all out and um or werewolf film you know there's oh i keep coming up with like severed heads in the in the woods what's going on um and then that's the first half the mystery and then the ending the conclusion when you know it's all revealed is all like exciting and stuff but it it just doesn't have the same appeal to me as the first part because it's the the mystery itself and um, this is why I find like faith, for example, intriguing because you know, I think before I was a Christian, I used to think faith was either, you know, believing in something without evidence. And I, that's not what faith is, not in in my understanding of faith. Faith is making a, deci- a decision on something based on evidence, but you may not have the 100% full picture. I think that's true of everything. In all worldviews, we don't have the full picture, so we make a choice based on the evidence. But also, like that, that faith is kind of this blind leap in the dark, and you have to kind of be anti-intellectual or whatever. But no, I think faith is is looking at the evidence, but it's also being willing to accept the mystery, because the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Hmm. Certainty is, you know, like. My, my, my faith in God, I have faith in God. I don't have certainty in God. Um, and that's a bit different. You know, certainty is that I would never have had a doubt in my life. Um, and that's just not true. <laughs> and um, I have faith, which is this sort of bundle of belief and sometimes doubts, but I tend to move towards the faith. And um, accepting that mystery, I think, is, is quite liberating. But for some people, and particularly people in the church, um, it's 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 bad. 
it's like no 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 you mustn't ever question you need to kind of stake your colors to the mast and the older you get the more the more black and white you should become but actually i think having grayness is a sign of well spiritual maturity in the sense of you're willing to be open-minded to yourself being wrong yeah yeah absolutely i think that's a really good way of looking at it but it is very frustrating and um, for other people <laughs> because they can just say just answer the bloody question <laughs> you know but you're like but I, I i don't feel i have you know i don't feel i have to um because the black and white thinking is very important for when you're younger um and when you're growing up you need to think right you know all strangers are probably going to attack me so i better not speak to them as a kid and then you grow older you go actually that's not necessarily the case so you need black and white thinking early on just a function you know crossing the road you know if i if i do it in a certain way i'll get killed so i better not do that always cross at the lights but then you get older you start thinking oh maybe there's some nuance here that that's maturity it's um but yeah some people think you've got to be black and white for the rest of your life and i think that's unrealistic well it is for me anyway me too. I, I agree there. So a few minutes ago, you were talking about the podcasts that you do. You have three, oh, yeah. I believe, at the moment, which is really good going. Yeah, it's because, a bit much. Because really. <laughs> I, I have enough trouble doing one. So I kudos <laughs> for that. Um, just, just talk a little yeah. bit about, about them and what they're about. Yeah, I mean, I've got, yeah, I've got three podcasts. And so the, the, the two main podcasts I'm doing at the moment is one's called Frightful. And it's scary, true stories. And so that might be anything from the paranormal to true crime, but it, it, but the true crime stuff has normally got a link between, but a link to the paranormal or horror vibes, you know, horror things like this. The, the next episode's coming out is is about a a murder case, but the the murderer believed he was a vampire, so it's it's usually got that sort of horror fortian unexplained vibe to it. And then, um, and then I host another show and write the other show called um, Hometown History Europe, and that is a, a spin-off from a, a popular American podcast called Hometown History. And I do the European version of that. I've only started that really; it's just been a few months. But that's um, that's been a new experience for me, kind of moving in the history space, as they call it. Um, but it's been it's it's been very rewarding, and you know, looking at uh, all sorts of things from the R101 um, airship disaster to, I just did this thing on this um, Nazi war crime in France, which was pretty intense. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's, it's just, it's more history. I, I did, did a really interesting episode recently where I got to go down into a vast sort of secret nuclear bunker and spent, spent time down there and interviewing people. And so, yeah, so that's, those are those two podcasts. And then the third podcast, which is more of a kind of passion project, I suppose, so that doesn't come out super regular because I've got other things I've got to do work-wise, um, is uh, called Creepy Cove Community Church. And that is basically full and immersive church services broadcast from a mysterious haunted fishing town. It's like Songs of Praise meets Stephen King. And people who listen, people who listen to it, it's, it's basically like listening to an actual church service with notices and weird hymns and eerie prayers and uh, sound effects and music and the sermon. But the sermon for me, or sometimes guest speakers, is just on general well-being and mental health and encouragement. So it's designed specifically for anyone, regardless of their faith. And I've been delighted how, you know, some of the 
the biggest supporters of the show, including patrons, uh, people who actually pay to support some of this stuff, are, you know, they're not Christians, they're atheists, some of them, you know, maybe pagans or whatever, but they, they find Creepy Cove to be a space in which they can, you know, be encouraged, even though it's got vampires and sometimes mentions of God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it sounds great. I, I just, now I, I sort of want a spooky version of Songs of Praise. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly got elements of kind of bizarre comedy to it because, um, creepy cove is a town where all of the, the, all horror movies actually happened. And so, uh, the, the, the people in the congregation are horror characters. So, you know, one, for example, Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th, he does the keep fit classes for the church. So he's, uh, there's a, there's a whole, there's a whole jogging with Jason, um, running audio program that you can go out and he'll take you out for a 30 minute jog and he just kills people along the way. Um, or there's a, uh, you know, at the, the carol service, like Jack and Wendy Torrance from the shining were playing, um, playing parts in the nativity. And it's just, it's really crazy and weird, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And I've been delighted that it seems to have touched a lot of people, including, you know, people who would never set foot in a church normally. Mm, yeah. Um, in your Hometown History Europe podcast, um, recently, I listened to the episode, which is all about Padre Pio. Um, and he's somebody though, who I have to admit, the first time I heard the name was in an episode of the TV sitcom Father Ted, um, where, where, where <laughs> right. I think one of the characters mentions that someone's seen Padre Pio in like a teacup, like in the doing the tea, reading tea leaves and they've seen Padre Pio. And ever since yeah. I heard that name, it's a memorable name. I thought, who is this guy? And I listened to your episode about him. It was fascinating. Um, could you just talk a little bit about him and, and that episode? Yeah, I mean, Padre Pio is, um, he's known as, he's almost like the, the supernatural priest. Um, he's a, a Franciscan a Capuchin friar. And um, he he's he's famous for for a, a few things. Um, one is his his work. He did a lot of work um, to try and support hospitals, for example, um, because he was very ill through his life and he suffered with various kind of maladies. But he's more famous um, for having various supernatural abilities, so called. You know, so people have witnessed them having things. Most famously, like stigmata where, you know, um, he would look down and his palms would open and he would see blood coming out. And uh, this was something that he experienced throughout his life. But as well as that, he, even from a young age, he said he was seeing visions of not only angels, but also demons. And um, that throughout his uh, priesthood, he started to become known for very Fortean things. So he would like bilocate, for example, when he was praying, somebody witnessed him levitating. Um, as well as the stigmata, he would sometimes predict the future of people's lives or there would be, you know, miraculous healing. And um, again, like I was saying before, I don't feel I have to say, so he was 100% true and let's believe it. Um, or, well, he's obviously a con man. Um, because there's so many reports about him. I think, yes, it's quite possible. Like l many of them are just kind of, you know, fables, I suppose, but there's so much stuff in his life. He, he's quite a fascinating character. 
so yeah so i did that episode on on him and um yeah particularly this this stigmata stuff that he experienced is um and apparently the blood had a, a very sweet fragrance fragrance and um people would sometimes kind of smell the fragrance of him around even after his death so there's like ghostly stuff as well in there so he's a of all the priests i can think of he's probably the most 40 and <laughs> mm, yeah i would agree um what i found interesting about him is that he's a very mystical character and i do, do you mm-hmm. find that that in more modern times i mean he died relatively recently didn't he, he died in 1968 i think and when you yeah, when you read about him when when i first heard about him i thought he was you know he was like a medieval character because of the things that were attributed to him but he died, he, but he's he lived in living memory um and i just wonder do you do you feel like organized religion large religions shy away from the more mystical elements of what they are I, I, um because i i know okay <laughs> I, sorry well, let, let me sorry explain that that's a, that a, that a very black and white answer no next question <laughs> no no, no. no uh, so what i mean is um there there are there are plenty who do and um, plenty of churches who are suspicious of say the contemplative approach to spirituality um, and people who are, um, for example, cessationists who believe that the the gifts of the spirit, let's say, um, were only relevant for the Bible times and that they have ceased now. But actually, there's a heck of a lot. Like, a, I would say that's in the minority. There's, you know, from Pentecostalism to charismatic Christianity, there is a lot of kind of prophetic mysticism and all these sorts of things. I was literally just in church on on, on Sunday, um, attending a church and they were, you know, up there talking about mystical experiences that they had and a woman who was ill and um, struggling and decided to turn up at the church and she prayed and she felt a hand on her left shoulder and there was no one there. And then she's been healed of whatever she was suffering with. And the church is like, way hey, that's amazing. Um, again, you can be cynical and think, ah, oh, really? But I've been to this church a few times and this sort of thing happens quite a bit. Um, and they go into the they go into the town and they take artists into the town and they'll just sit there and they'll paint pictures. They'll just go up to people and say, "Would you like me to paint a picture?" And these artists will paint a picture of something, hand it to them, and then these people will see the picture and just sort of burst into tears and say, "How did you know this was relevant?" So th- there's still a kind of a wild west of kind of supernatural action going on in certain denominations um and there's controversy there of course as well because you know there could potentially be people pretending as well but um but no it's still going on and there's there's but there is a mystical tradition and um you know people in meditation and uh basically a lot lot of kind of a lot of the advice that you get in mental health which is mindfulness for example like that that that's that stuff that that's been going on in, in ancient Christianity for just years and years. Uh, Well, I mean, sorry, for generations, for thousands of years, this idea of sitting down and and being mindful and and sort of appreciating and breathing and meditation and all that stuff that you could say is like trendy was, is, is very old. But I think what happens today is that uh, the biggest voices of the church tend to be the, the really hardcore kind of evangelicals who 
um, are against a lot of this sort of stuff. And um, well, are against most things, to be honest. <laughs> now, yeah, that's a really good answer. I just, I just think about how if you read the sort of the true descriptions of angels, like the these beings are hard to imagine. Like there, there's something about them that is truly sort of bizarre. And I, I think there's just part of me that would like people to know more about that kind of thing. Like the the more esoteric elements of of Christianity, for example, not just Christianity, yeah. but other religions too. But I, I just think there's, there's so much interesting stuff in scripture yeah, um, that I think people would like and, to know more about. But it's maybe, it's maybe not because of certain reasons, like you talked about. Yeah, well, I think what happens is, um, is, is people, like a lot of people just have, and I used to be like this, I, I had my experience of Christianity was mediated to me through films and TV. Mm. And so they weren't presenting to me you know, all, all this sort of stuff we've been talking about, all these kind of crazy mystical stuff. It was presenting either pedophile priests or totally irrelevant old people who would be, you know, like, oh, more tea, vicar, and just like figures <laughs> of, of, of ridicule um, or, uh, you know, hardcore televangelists who were con men. Uh, and so it's very easy to therefore go oh yeah that's what christianity is isn't it it's it's that that group of people it's the irrelevant people it's the corrupt people or it's the kind of anti-gay anti-evolution anti-science people and um that is to forget that and not realize that christianity is so broad and there's so many different um, expressions and that the modern evangelical mindset that you see has not always been what Christianity's looked like. It's looked quite different over the years. And I, and, and you kind of need to say that to Christians too, because there are some Christians themselves who find themselves asking questions of say their evangelical church that they're in and thinking, I'm not sure if I believe in this anymore. And they leave Christianity altogether because they're looking for a say mystical experience. And they've got no idea that if they just went down the road, there may be a, a different congregation that's offering a very mystical experience and talking about angels and all these sorts of things. Which uh, you're right, uh, probably quite scary because every time an angel turns up in the Bible, they tend to say, "Do not be afraid." I'm not really sure why you'd say that, yeah, unless you, you were look, you terrifying. look freaky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, um, I, I was thinking that too. Yeah, but but again, we 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 think of like shows like uh, I don't know if you remember, there was a TV show called I think Highway to Heaven or something, which um, was in the 1980s, which was just a nice, kindly, handsome man. Who was the angel? And we tend to all those like films, yeah, um, like it's a wonderful life. Or you know, we, we tend to think of kind of human-looking, pleasant people, maybe with wings, if mm. the effects budget can stretch to that. But we're not talking about like sort of sword-wielding faces with like hundreds of eyes and all of these like <laughs> grotesque. Like what the heck? <laughs> you know. So it's yeah, that that's a bit more. Do not be afraid. <laughs> yeah. So, um, moving on from from angels and Christianity, uh, a place that you've been and that you've talked about for your podcast and you've written about for fourteen times and was in your your book from twenty eighteen, the the frighteners, which I I really enjoyed. Um, oh, thank you. Is Transylvania, and mm. so far in the history of me doing this podcast, I haven't really 
touched on vampires very much, so I'd be uh, honoured if you'd talk about your adventures in Transylvania. Um, well, I, well, thank you. I mean, Transylvania was was just a great experience. I had I had such a good time, and it was quite a um, it was quite a special time for me, really, because really, you, you kind of I, I was staying in a um, in an old Saxon village, and walking around at nighttime where there was like wild dogs running around and the streets and houses looked like something directly out of a hammer horror film. And, 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 and you're also reminding yourself every step you're going, I'm in Transylvania, which for some people is, doesn't mean anything, or it's just what a weird place to go on holiday. But for maybe us people who are, who find meaning in, in horror and gothic literature and all and films and stuff it's a big deal to find yourself in a, a real place that's that's got all this like it evokes all of these feelings um and it was it was a great great trip and um what was particularly interesting in that is um i wrote an article for the 14 times based on an interview i did when i was there with the daughter of the village wise woman and i met her in this little creaky bar pub thing um which was cool because they had dowsing rods behind the counter so every now and then people would go get the dowsing rods and try and find out where the running water was underneath the thing and they tended to work but i don't know a lot about dowsing but i tried it for the first time and i said they're moving and they said well look that you've got the right place that's where the water is anyway uh, talking to the um to this this woman and um she was explaining to me that really in in Transylvania, she introduced me to not so much more vampire things, but things to do with um, creatures called the Strigoi, which are a little bit like vampires, but a cross between vampire ghost and kind of vengeful demon, um, where she was telling me stories of where, you know, a, a person might die and if they have unresolved conflict or they haven't found love or something like that, then there's a risk that they may return as a strigoi, which is this sort of like walking demon who could potentially come back and devour their family, you know, to attack their family and and kill them. And I was like, wow, I've never heard of this sort of stuff before. But there, she was telling me about certain villages. And then I researched this as well myself when I got back home, telling me about villages, for example, where um, it was a you know, fairly recent case where a, a family... Uh, the uncle died and they were feeling worried because people were getting ill and losing their jobs. And rather than just think, Oh, life's a bit crap at the moment. They were like, well, clearly uncle Bob or whatever has come back as a strigoi. He must've had something unresolved. And so a few of the family went up to the grave site, dug him up, cracked open his ribs with a shovel, pulled out his heart, set fire to his heart, got the ashes from his heart and put it into a drink took it back home and you know, their family all drank this as a way of somehow stopping this from happening. And this sort of thing is still apparently happening in some of the more kind of rural areas. And um, yeah, so that sort of stuff is, was new to me because I only, I only went there thinking, Oh, well, it's about vampires, isn't it? But uh, there's a, there's a kind of rich bed from where we get these uh, vampire ideas and the Strigoi, I think is one of them. Hmm. I guess this is going back to the grey area you were talking about, but if vampires do exist, what do you think they are? 
Well, that's yeah. I, mean, I suppose this is this is where like I I suppose there are certain things that I find much much harder to be open minded about. Um, so for example, like I'm open minded about aliens and Bigfoot and all these sorts of things. Um, fairies are talked about quite a lot these days. I'm less open minded about that, but I try not to shut the door. But and and so vampires, for example. I, you know, if I was to put my money on it, I'd say they probably don't exist. Although I have interviewed a few of them, um, or at least, sorry, I should say people who claim to be vampires and indeed did drink blood and, um, that, that was a thing for them. And they would, they would safely, well, I'd say safely drink, um, drink people's blood and make blood pancakes and all these sorts of things. So interviewed a few of them for my book, but, um, if they actually exist, what are they? Um, I don't know, uh, because the the thing of the strigoi seems to be they are human beings who are not happy about something and they come back. But that seems to be a very common idea when it comes to the dead, that there's some sort of uh, unresolved thing that they have to come back from the dead to deal with. Vampires seem a bit different to me. They, I mean, I suppose I'm informed by horror culture and films and things. But they don't strike me as, you know, they, well, they're not dead people who've come back to life in that same way. They have been bitten and turned. And for some of them, it's actually quite a liberating life and quite an exciting life, if not a lonely one. So are they demons? Are they just human beings? I, I don't know. Probably just human beings who have got a weird disease. Yeah. In, um, in a previous interview I did, I was talking with my guest who's a paranormal researcher in Canada and she was talking about a murder case in which the the perpetrator was sort of considered to be a, a wendigo a dark entity from from first nations law in north america and i think there oh, is okay. something uh, a condition called wendigo psychosis where somebody becomes like a cannibal they they murder and eat people and they can become quite gaunt. They, you know, they become a monster essentially. And I, I wonder if something like that has happened in the past in, in places. And going back to what we were talking about with possession as well, I, I think there is this sort of place where you can't quite be sure. Like the, what's happened to the person is so, is so entire, is so complete. It maybe has done something which goes beyond what we can, would consider to be like mental illnesses. It's it's hard to kind of put your finger on, but but my guest was saying there has been like there's law about the heart of a wendigo being frozen, and you can if you heat it like with fire or with tallow, then that defeats the wendigo. And apparently there have been cases where they've examined the bodies of people who were thought to be wendigos, and there has been ice in the chest cavity. So I don't know with that one. When I if I had to say what I think a vampire is, something similar to that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned about the heart because, of course, uh, you know, the way to kill a vampire is a stake through the heart. Um, and uh, hearts do crop up. I, in the podcast episode, I'm, the Frightful episode I'm just about to do is about a, a, a Welsh teenager who, in 2001, murdered an elderly lady, cut open her chest and pulled her heart out and drank her blood and all this sort of stuff. So it's, there's this big feature on the heart and you could ask, well, why? Like, what's so important about the heart? And I suppose it's like we, we tend to think, oh, well, that's because that's the center 
that's the center of our life, isn't it? You know, maybe that's where the soul resides or something. But that's only really because our culture has told us that. Um, I I never forget when I was listening to a sermon once where a guy was um, reading out a passage in the Bible and said something like, "There's you know, wherever your treasure is, there your heart is also or something, a, a passage in the Bible. But he said something like, oh, but do you know, like the, I can't remember what country it was, but he named another country. He says, do you know what their translation is? It's wherever your spleen is or it's wherever your bladder is. And he says, because in, in that culture, they believe the soul resides in the spleen. And it's like, so there's only like a passion about the heart because it's, you know, what we've called at the heart. That, what you were just saying, that really makes me want a, like a, a cross stitch that says home is where the spleen is. I think that would be brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Peter, this has been a really interesting chat. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. And thanks for all these questions. We've, uh, we've explored um, some, some, some great avenues. So yeah, it's, it's, it's always good to talk about this stuff. If people want to find out more about yourself and everything you do, how best do they do that? Yeah, if they want to go to uh, peterlaws.co.uk and they can find out about my um, my podcasts there and also, yes, my, my nonfiction book, but also my novels. I have four novels come out, so you can always check them out. And uh, if you're interested in the podcasts and um, want to get more involved in that and um, want to support those, then there's a Patreon and you can go to patreon.com forward slash Peter Laws and you get a bunch of extras, including ad-free episodes and, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, and also on, on social media, Twitter's a good place to find me, at Reverend Peter Laws. Brilliant. Well, I'll make sure to put all that in the show notes. Thank you. Very kind. Thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Peter. I think that he made a very insightful observation on the relationship between faith and certainty, which highlights how Fortean thinking can help to get past the perceived division between science and spirituality. It can be easy to get comfortable with defined patterns of thinking when you're interested in the rich variety of supernatural subject matters, especially when trying to identify the cause or true nature of such phenomena, when really it's the mystery itself which could be most important of all. The episodes of the Frightful podcast Peter mentioned about a vampire-inspired murderer in Wales are now available. If you enjoyed the more macabre aspects of our chat, then they're well worth a listen, along with the rest of Frightful and Peter's other shows. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen, and sharing it on social media, as it really helps the podcast to grow and find new listeners. You can follow some other sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod, and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.